Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Sunday, June 19, 2022. Welcome to the 19th episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. Download the show as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is senior defense analyst and author of American Fascism and everything you ever wanted to know about trans but were afraid to ask, Bryn Tannehill. Bryn, hi. Welcome to the uh, weekend show. Great to have you. Um, finally, been trying to get you for a while, and uh, now you're here. We've got um, lots of subjects uh, to look at this week. Obviously, it seems like the whole of America has gone crazy in the last week. And uh, so uh, a couple of the stories to look at. I want to talk about uh, Biden uh, going to Saudi Arabia, a lot of criticism of that. Uh, this kind of relationship between uh, U.S. and Saudi. Uh, we're also going to look at uh, Ginny Thomas calls for her to be subpoenaed after The Washington Post revealed that the wife of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas communicated with the former uh, Trump attorney, John Eastman, uh, ahead of the insurrection. Um, but first, I want to look at this executive order that Biden signed uh, this last week. I think it was on Wednesday. Uh, he signed it to stymie what his administration calls discriminatory legislative attacks on the LGBTQ community by Republican-controlled states, declaring before a signing ceremony packed with activists that pride is back at the White House. Now, this is a subject that I'm sure is very close to your heart um, for many, many reasons. Um, and uh, in fact, you have a new book coming out next year. Do you want to just tell us about that very quickly? So my next book is titled My Child Told Me They're Trans, What Do I Do? A Q&A Guide for Parents. Uh, and it's essentially uh, questions about having a transgender child answered by parents of transgender children who have uh, affirmed and supported them. Uh, and it provides kind of a counter narrative to what you see in a lot of the media, particularly uh, even the New York Times recently, that has platformed parents who have trans kids who don't support them. So your book would definitely be banned in Florida schools. Right? Oh, my goodness. Yes. All of <laughs> yeah, them. <laughs> all of them. All, all of your books. Yes. Including the book on fascism. Um, this is really the issue, isn't it? That, that um, you know, and I, I guess is this, uh, you know, the legacy of Trumpism is that, you know, we're now dealing in. The, and I was just talking to you before we started uh, this show about, you know, how the last five years seems to have gone completely crazy. And I think, you know, when it comes to uh, LGBTQ plus issues, that's what, you know, that's right up there, isn't it? Because of the the rhetoric and and hate crime is the result of that. So with the Trump administration, one of the first things they did was unilaterally ban transgender people from the military after transgender service had been opened up 
uh, under the Obama administration. And there was no real research or rationale given for it. It was all post hoc justifications um, that were dredged up. It was a purely political move to appease the base. And over time, uh, the attacks on transgender people have spread out from trans folks, you know, on things like uh, healthcare for trans minors, uh, bathrooms, uh, trans kids in sports. And now they feel like they have so much of the upper hand, particularly in the courts, that they've expanded it to lesbians, gays, bisexual people as well. Um, and one of the most disturbing things to come out of recent events, particularly out of Florida with their Don't Say Gay bill, is that anyone who says, hey, maybe we shouldn't be banning everything about LGBT people from youth because there's LGBT youth there and many of them need support because they don't have supportive homes to label them groomers and pedophiles. And this is the kind of language that usually comes before really, really bad things happen in a society to a minority. Um, and it's also this signal that if a society is falling into uh, fascism or autocracy, that bad things are coming. So for the LGBT community, uh, this has been a unpleasant six months and very worrying. So what Biden is doing is very much appreciated, but it's not a long-term fix. Let's just talk about what Biden is doing. It's, it's, uh, it's effectively an executive order, which arguably Correct. he could have done a long time ago, right? I mean, there's no reason why he couldn't have started his administration with this because, you know, that their hatred towards minority groups had started long before uh, Biden showed up. So, you know, this is this a long time coming? I mean, should he have done this sooner? And, and do you think it will have a lasting effect or is this just a paying lip service to a, an, an issue that he can't really deal with? So it's a little bit of a combination of a lot of those things. First of all, at this point, everybody and their dog knows that the Equality Act is dead. It's not happening. There's no way to move it through the Senate. Function, there, it hasn't been brought up for debate, and it never will happen in our system, right? That would be the most direct, be the most direct way to deal with all this anti-LGBT stuff going on. But literally within the past six months, it's ramped up by several orders of magnitude in terms of how common and vocal and vicious it is. So in 2021, I think we've had like four times as much anti-LGBT legislation this year than we did last year. So Biden is responding to something that's kind of happened within the past six months, but it was building towards this. And unfortunately, it's kind of all he can do at this point, given how um, the filibuster rules in the Senate and the... Republican Party essentially becoming uh, in lockstep with anti-LGBT forces, despite what the support from the public there is from LGBT people, um, there's really nothing he can do but executive orders. And the scary part is, is I'm not sure how many of these executive orders are going to survive review by the courts, which remember, uh, Trump put a lot of people in the courts in his four years there with right. the help of Mitch McConnell. Yeah. I feel, I feel like... Um you know, when I, I guess this started with the sports issue, right? LGBTQ people, trans people in sports. This, this is kind of how this recent debate began in places like Florida, right? Where, where um, uh, 
you know, girls wanted to play in girls' teams and weren't allowed. And so it, there was a kind of backlash about that. And then before you knew it, they realized that this was like an issue that they could get behind and actually it would mobilize anger and support. And so then that kind of stretched into books in schools. And it, it, it it's now become a huge thing, right? I mean, even to the point that Ron DeSantis has taken on Disney for saying that they are they are pro-LGBTQ+. The issue I think that we have with Republicans is it's almost like they don't know anybody who's gay or trans, right? So they can't make these connections. Well, they probably do know people that are gay and trans. They just don't realize that they're gay and trans or they've blocked it out or those people are not outwardly gay or trans. Do you think that's the issue, that there's just this lack of exposure? Because arguably, you know, 13% of the population are LGBTQ+. Yeah, and that number varies a lot depending on what survey you're looking in the methodology. But, you know, looking back at Alfred Kinsey's um, study going back to the 40s that's saying that 10% of the American public is some form of LGBT doesn't seem to be that far off once you take away uh, the shackles of stigma and discrimination to some extent. Um, but with the Republican Party and Republican base, there are quite a few people within the Republican base who believe American society can only be fixed and become more godly if there are no openly LGBT people. And if I were to take a guess, uh, given how Mark Burns in South Carolina ran on a kill the gays platform and got 25% of the GOP vote in the primary, right? Well, that's about a quarter of the Republican Party is behind removing them from society. Uh, others believe, well, parents, you know, anything that's LGBT is obscene and children should never be exposed to it. Even, you know, if, even if it's as much as, you know, two women pushing a baby carriage in a Pixar movie, they don't do anything. They just push a baby carriage together. Right. Um, and these are the ones that are behind the, the don't say gay things that are behind removing all the books from libraries. Um, but it's very dangerous. And you should be familiar with this because it's pushing towards kind of a Section 28 style mentality or law or policy about LGBT people. For those who don't know, Section 28 was a law in the UK that basically banned any discussion of LGBT lives around children in the UK. If I got that wrong, please correct me. Um, but it also, we're looking at stuff that could resemble the uh, LGBT propaganda laws in Russia, right, to protect children. And, you know, so what started out as something that was unfortunately popular, if misguided, which was banning trans youth from sports, has morphed into uh, much more openly saying there shouldn't be openly LGBT people in society. Won't someone please think of the children? I feel like... Um uh, you know, the Section 28 that you're referring to, it goes back to Margaret Thatcher's government. Um, yep. uh, and this was something that happened, I think, in uh, 1998. Um, and uh, it, it caused... 88. Uh, 88, sorry, 1988. And it, it ran till the year 2000. I mean, it was like abolished in the year 2000. But the point is that we are living in a society that has this kind of confusion about who people are, you know, this, this, this kind of identity politics, right, where it's not just the politicians that struggle with identity. It's actually, it's, it's voters looking upon other voters for their 
um, you know, who are confused about their identity and fear. I think fear is behind a lot of this, isn't it? So let's just look at the origins of the fear born by Republicans or evangelical Christians or whoever it is that's bringing up these types of um, arguments and, and, and pushing for this kind of legislation. It's very important to, for me to kind of understand what their thinking is. Is it that they just source the Bible and anything that strays from the Bible's teachings, it, it, you know, can't be considered acceptable in their modern society? Or is it just a general hatred of minority groups or anybody who isn't kind of white, Aryan and heterosexual? So my book actually, American Fascism, actually talks about this. And the Republican base is dominated politically by white evangelical Christians. That is their base. That is the people that those are the people that they have to make happy if they want to get reelected, if they want to win the primaries, which are, you know, in 90% of the cases, the only election that matters because the general election's already been decided through gerrymandering or the fact that they're in such a red state. And social dominance orientation is where people think that because of some sort of innate or in traits that they have as a group, they should be the favored people within a society, right? They are God's people. They are the Herrenvolk. They are the people who should be in charge, right? And the response we're seeing to LGBT people now is kind of the same response that you got during the civil rights movement and during desegregation, where it felt like black people were being elevated up to the level of white people and that that felt like that they were losing some of the specialness of their place in American society. And for a very long time, LGBT people have been seen as lesser, have been seen as something wrong with them, seen as broken, um, have been stigmatized and demonized. And seeing LGBT people being raised to be treated as well, or regarded as well by the American public as white evangelicals when you take polling, that's scary to them because it feels like they're being replaced or displaced. It feeds. That's why we're seeing a lot of anti-LGBT stuff popping up in replacement theory. Um, but overall, they feel like they are losing something, that they are marginalized as Christians, and it makes them scared and angry when they, when they see themselves being labeled, labeled as bigots for being anti-LGBT. And so they're lashing out and trying to take LGBT people back down to where they think they should be. They're also branding their own evangelical white Christian Christianity as American, right? They they are they they think that they are the Americans, and anybody who is not in that camp is not American. And we see that with you know, reclaim America and take your country back. All this is like it's code, isn't it, for just one type of person. So what that's very interesting that you mentioned that, and this might be a good segue, but um, the Claremont Institute, uh, to which Eastman belongs, has been a big advocate for Trump and for the notion that they need, that conservatives need to take back control of the United States for at least a generation, if not two, in order to make America great again. And taking control of America, they mean by any means necessary, including January 6th, including subverting elections. But one of the really interesting things is that another author whose name eludes me at the moment, 
with the Claremont Institute, um, claimed that less than half of Americans are really American. And he was clearly referring to Democrats. And what is the Democratic Party but a coalition of people, you know, uh, Jews, Muslims, people of color, LGBT people, um, they, uh, also more educated white people. Um, you know, this, that's who they see as the enemy and as un-American. So I think you hit the nail on the head, and it all kind of ties together into this weird outlook that they are the Heron Volk. This is something that frightens me, you know, as an immigrant myself. And I, I actually felt nervous when I was living in the States under the Trump administration as an immigrant. And maybe you did too as, as a LGBTQ person. Because, you know, when there's an authority that is anti-immigration, anti-gay, anti-trans, you feel unsafe in your own country. And it was interesting for me to be a, a minority in that, in that way. Now, I feel safer and, you know, I'm a permanent resident now and I'm, you know, living under Joe Biden's um, administration. So I don't feel like I'm going to be picked up and deported or separated from my children or anything, you know, like that. But I did think about that a little. How do you feel and think yourself based on who you are the country that you've been born into, the country you've served as a, as a veteran now. How do you feel when you see this change in, in American society? Or maybe it's not a change, maybe it's just going back, you know, this rewind of, uh, of history. So I'm going to insert that my wife is an immigrant from Canada, and the, she has been very much aware that she's treated differently than other immigrants. Uh, we lived uh, for quite a while uh, here in the Northern Virginia area in a, in a neighborhood that was full of immigrants. Um, and white English-speaking um, immigrants are treated very differently by conservatives. They're treated as the good ones. Oh, we want you. We don't want the brown ones. Yeah. Right? So that's, that's a big thing. But anti-immigration sentiments are... Um, nearly uniform throughout right-wing populist, a.k.a. fascist movements around the globe. Look at Hungary, right? There's, yeah. a, there's another really good example. We even saw um, it in Poland, didn't we? You know, with when people leaving Ukraine, crossing into Poland, and, and black and brown people struggled to get across the border, and white people were yes. welcomed immediately. Yes, and there's some, been some other things with Belarus, um, you know, d deliberately trying to stir up trouble in the European Union. Um, by doing some shenanigans with immigration involving people from African and Middle Eastern countries. So, yeah, that's, that's a huge deal. But when I look at the U.S., it's been profoundly disappointing and disheartening to realize that this country has turned against democracy, against the things you thought were important. It has also lost its mind. Um, I'm constantly quoting Jonathan Swift when I say you can't reason someone out of something that they were never reasoned into in the first place. Um, a lot of the beliefs held by uh, Republicans today, including the, the big lie that the election was stolen, don't come from a rational place. Uh, Anti-LGBT animus doesn't come from a rational place. It comes from religion and 
uh, deep-seated fear and years of st stigmatization and demonization of people is these are other, they are dangerous, they're gross. Um, but what strikes me the most is the fact that I don't trust this country if we do fall into authoritarianism. Um, you're probably safe. You're, I you're white, I presume cisgender and heterosexual, I don't know. But you, you aren't in the kind of danger that most uh, LGBT people and trans yeah. people feel in particular. And, and, I, and I caveat what I said earlier with total understanding of my white middle class privilege completely. And I, and I recognize that, you know, obviously there are varying degrees, but I just sensed under the Trump administration that I, you know, my dream of moving to America could have been ripped away from me at any point. And, you know, my fear is if he was to return, he could say, right, all green card holders out. You know, he, he, can, he can change the rules uh, and turn on a dime. And so, obviously, for people who are, are, are minorities in, in America, either born in America or, or immigrants to America, certainly from, you know, the, from the, the southern border, as Trump refers to it all the time, there must be this constant sense of fear. And, I, and, and my concern is that, you know, why would you want to come to a country where you're just going to feel as aggrieved as you would in the country that you were escaping persecution from? And I don't know why any sane LGBT person would want to come to the United States right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, with the end of Roe versus Wade via Dobbs versus Jackson, um, it's very clear to most you know, legal observers, I know that uh, Obergefell is probably toast and Lawrence versus Texas, which uh, held that uh, sodomy laws were unconstitutional, is also probably toast. It's going to be, you know, in 30 plus states in the United States within the next few years, uh, same-sex marriage is going away. Um, and and a few months ago, we heard a Republican senator accidentally say that maybe interracial marriage needs to be something that should be and looked And they're at. already gunning for Griswold versus Connecticut, yeah. which held that the government can't interfere with your right to birth control, right? So all these things are going away, but the thing that's really terrifying for LGBT people is that it's going, that what comes next is very much directed. What's happening to women is just, it's neglect. It's, oh, you got pregnant and you're gonna die because you got pregnant, eh, right? It's, but it's not designed to drive women out of Texas and Florida. The kinds of things we're seeing with the Republican Party today is designed to make life for LGBT people in red states as miserable and unpleasant as possible in order for them to either go back into the closet or leave. And this is some very middle-class white stuff on my part, but I'm one of the very small minority of LGBT people that has the option of uh, saying, you know what, I'm, I'm taking my Canadian wife and we're going to Canada where our marriage is recognized and my kids aren't going to be taken away because they're living with, a, with an LGBT couple. I, I fear, you know? Bryn, that we're all going to end up in Canada. <laughs> you know, that's, I think Canada's... That's, everybody I Canada's, talk to on this subject or similar, they're like, Canada, you know, America without the guns. And I and Which, I and I feel like you know it, it, it sounds crazy, but it, I mean it, it's 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 a consideration for a lot of people. 
the problem is, is that getting into Canada or one of the Commonwealth nations is extraordinarily difficult. I have a code worker who's 40-ish, has a master's degree, um, years of experience in government and industry, um, and she tried to find out if she would be eligible to move to Canada, and the answer was, no, you don't have enough skills and education to, to, to live in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, I fear as a British person, I would also struggle to get into Canada as well. Um, I just want to talk about the hate crime that has we're starting to see, not just in the US, but around the world. And, and arson, New Zealand, Detroit, Baltimore, all in the last few weeks. Do you think, uh, you know, there's people with pride flags outside their houses or this is, you know, community centers that are used for uh, LGBTQ plus um, events? Is there a connection between these types of crimes now? Yes. Um, I honestly believe um, that the kinds of tactics that were used against abortion clinics and against abortion providers are going to be utilized against LGBT people. Um, and we're seeing it already. A lot of arson. Uh, we saw three homes uh, in Maryland burned to the ground. Uh, three people in the hospital because somebody decided to set one of their pride flags on fire. Uh, we saw the oldest gay bar in Detroit burned down. Uh, yesterday, we also saw an LGBT center burned. Uh, we saw Patriot Front looking like they were going to uh, being charged with uh, attempting a riot uh, at a pride festival in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Um, we're seeing candidates more openly talk about trying LGBT people for treason and executing them. Um, the hate is there, but what's really worrying to me is I'm starting to see counter tactics that use the same sort of thing. Um, we've seen a few um, pregnancy crisis centers, which are basically religious organizations that only a few of them actually provide medical services. They, they exist to prevent people from getting abortions. We've seen a pair of them burned by a group calling itself uh, Jane's Revenge. And the fact that almost no one gets caught for arson leads me to believe, and the growing frustration and fear leads me to believe that we're going to see increasing violence on both sides. But at first, um, it's LGBT people and LGBT centers that are going to be bearing the brunt of this. I mean, this is the kind of civil war that some of us have been predicting, right? It's like, you know, we didn't really know who would be on what side. We thought it would be as simple as Republicans and Democrats. And it really isn't, is it? I mean, it's, this is quite nuanced. And, and from what you said earlier, you know, with women's health care being removed, women are now going to move into the same group as LGBT, where women are considered a minority group f from the mindset of those white evangelical Christian Republicans who are seeking to rewrite society and, and, and reconstruct society. Is this, would this have happened at the speed and the rate that it has if Donald Trump had not been in the White House for four years? Do you, do you feel like he kind of galvanized this level of hatred or was it coming anyway? It was always there and the Tea Party was always deranged. It was always out of touch with reality. It was always nuts and angry. But what Donald Trump did is he unleashed it. He opened the Overton window such that Republicans realized, oh, wow, given all the polarization, given the gerrymandering, given the voter suppression, 
I actually do better if I come across as crazy and mean and pandering to the base than I would if I come across as a moderate Republican. And that holds true in virtually every red state. Now, you know, the, the two most popular governors in America were a couple of Repu moderate Republican governors in Maryland and Massachusetts. But that's not the Republican Party. The future of the Republican Party are people like Ron DeSantis, who are essentially fascist culture warriors, right? Donald Trump just served as a way of showing the path that this isn't political suicide to say horrible, crazy, nasty, stupid things. This is a way to generate support. And to generate wealth, because we're now seeing through the January 6th investigation that, you know, this fund to save America, this fund to kind of fight against election integrity was all just going straight into the pocket of Trump and the Trump organization and, and associated businesses. And so really, this is a massive con, isn't it? You know, this isn't just about applying these this kind of antiquated thinking about about minority groups. This is also about, this is a grift. This is about making money. This is about raise, you know, fundraising for campaigns. This is the lowest form of, of um, humanity, is it not? It is a grift. Uh, there is money to be made um, selling crazy and mean. Um, and even sometimes putting a veneer of intellectualism on top of it. You've got your Matt Walsh's, you've your Ben Shapiro's. Your Candace Owens is. For gosh sakes, she suggested back in February that the U.S. should invade Canada in order to liberate it from Justin Trudeau. And if she wasn't serious, well, then it's obviously a grift. And if she was serious, considering how many followers she has, that shows you just how dumb, crazy, and scary the base is and how deranged it is, right? And, and I think deranged yeah. is the right word because, you know, I've been trying to analyze people like Candace Owens for a long time, trying to work out what it is, you know, how, especially for a black woman to have these extreme views. But the fact that she's eloquent and the fact that she's beautiful and the fact that she has a platform, you know, she has a vocabulary and clearly has an intellect, but it's the deranged element that for me was the kind of common denominator with all of these things. It, it was like, wow. And this is maybe the legacy of Trumpism, isn't it? Because if you elect a grifter, somebody who's never really worked for anybody or been held accountable by anybody in their lives, you know, Trump never had a job, right? He was given money by his father. He set up the businesses. He lost a load of money. We know the whole story now. But fundamentally, he's never, ever been held accountable. He's never held public office. Nobody has ever turned around to him and said, no, you can't do that, or no, you can't say that. When you take a character like that and put them in the Oval Office and put them on a pedestal, that arguably the highest pedestal in the world, and give them credence, give their crazy views credence, give Candace Owens credence because she's given a platform, whereas in previous years, somebody who was you know, as deranged as that, would never be given the opportunity to, to speak out. But now we have the internet and now we have TV channels that are very willing to give people like her a voice. This, to me, is the legacy of Trumpism. It's effectively opening a Pandora's box of, of insanity. 
And what separates the modern Republican Party from the Republican Party of old is in 1964, even Barry Goldwater made the conscious decision he wanted to keep the John Birch Society folks at arm's length. They wanted to keep the crazy at arm's length. And Nixon, when you look at his Southern strategy, you look at his war on drugs, right? Um, there was a recognition that you had to at least pretend to care, that you have to pretend that this wasn't about race, right? And even Lee Atwater in his N-word, N-word, you can't say N-word, N-word, N-word anymore, acknowledged that uh, you have to cover up what you're trying to do with economics and, you know, protecting white kids and stuff like that, right? Um, the GOP today has taken a half step towards reversing what Atwater said, right? Um, you know, they're, they're, they're murderers, they're drug dealers, and some, I assume, are good people, right? Um, is coming very dangerously close to, um, you know, reversing what Atwater said of you can't say the N-word anymore. Well, so what has happened with the GOP is that instead of keeping the crazy at arm's length, as Reagan did with a lot of the white evangelicals in the moral majority, um, and Bush did at times too, uh, the, the second Bush, um, Donald Trump embraced it, magnified it, gave it a platform and a megaphone, and invited it into the White House to determine policy. Um, because Steve the, Bannon was one of these people, right? From the outset, Bannon's he was, a great example. He was the first person into the White House as a chief advisor. And, and, and famously, when Bannon left, wasn't there very long, but when he left, he said that really all he wanted to do was cause chaos in America. You know, it's, it's the chaos that, that they crave, because if there's too much noise, then nobody really knows what to think. You know, and uh, conservative Christian um, political groups had access to the Trump White House that they never had under Bush or Reagan or the other Bush or Nixon, right? Um, Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council um, told the New York Times back in 2017, late 2017 or 2018 that he had access to the White House like he'd never had before. We know from the fight for uh, a, uh, trans military that the religious right very much had a seat at the table in that sort of decision-making process for the Department of Defense personnel policy, right? Um, so yeah, it, they, they have decided that they are letting in the Stephen Miller and the Steve Bannon and the far right religious fundamentalists, uh, and, and, and they just are going because to someone, let them run the country. Just because someone puts on a suit doesn't mean that they are to be trusted. And I, I fear, I mean, Bannon barely put on a suit. He, he wore two shirts and no jacket. But Miller is a very good example because he was very much in the shadows, wasn't he? And yet Miller arguably was the most extreme far-right protagonist. How, how, do we, how do we come back from a country that spent four years under this kind of administration? So I, I wrote a number of articles for Dame Magazine, and I've got a series of five articles coming out at the New Republic. Um, that discusses this, but I've got a rather grim prognosis, is that I laid out the things we needed to do in Janu back in January 2020, which was essentially we needed to hold Trump 
and his administration accountable for January 6th and for any crimes committed while in office. And we needed to pass voting rights legislation and election security uh, legislation in order to protect the rights of minority voters and protect election integrity. And because of the filibuster, uh, because the Republican Party has decided that they would much rather have power than a democracy, none of these things have happened. And I'm also going to throw some at Merrick, Merrick Garland, right? There has not been an aggressive enough, aggressive enough push to prosecute Trump and those around him for the events of January 6th or other crimes committed while he was in office. And as a result, this sends the message that if you're the ones in power and you commit crimes, you can commit as much crime as you want to in order to stay in power. And even if you do somehow manage to lose your hold on power, you're not going to be in trouble. Nothing's going to happen to you. It's going to be the foot soldiers who are going to take, take it in the teeth. Um, and Viktor Orban in Hungary gives a great example of once you have um, achieved competitive authoritarianism, and notice that the Republicans are holding CPAC in Hungary, it doesn't look like anything short of Romanian-style revolution is capable of removing such a party from power. There are no examples, modern examples of competitive authoritarian countries falling. Once they seize power, it's theirs. Let's uh, talk about January 6th committee uh, for a moment. Uh, more hearings this week. Uh, I, I personally have found the, the primetime hearings compelling. I'm sure you have too. But uh, the Washington Post uh, published an article in the week uh, revealing that the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas communicated with former President Donald Trump's attorney, John Eastman, the man in the hat, uh, who is increasingly looking like very much the mastermind behind this insurrection. And so there's calls for Ginny Thomas to be subpoenaed. Um, uh, they said that uh, she spoke with Mr. Eastman, who tried to pressure the former president, uh, Vice President Mike Pence, to overturn the election results. Uh, two of the people said that the correspondence was more widespread than previously understood. Um, I mean, this is all, it's very messy, isn't it? Because, you know, Clarence Thomas uh, and Ginny Thomas are pretty much the same person. That's how I see it anyway. You know, he, he, she refers to my friend, doesn't she, in, in some correspondence. And of course, that's her, that's her husband. Uh, publicly, they've both said, oh, well, you know, our personal lives, our professional lives, they don't intermingle. Well, obviously, that, that's not, not, not true. Um, and this is like payola, isn't it? I mean, this, this is like old, old school bribery. This is like having a person on the inside, except your person on the inside is the person who sits in the highest court in the land. Um, there's questions and calls for Thomas to recuse himself from, you know, anything associated with the insurrection, you know, cases that come through the Supreme Court. Or should he just resign? I mean, you know, so there's a few questions for you here. Should Ginny Thomas be subpoenaed? Should uh, Clarence Thomas step down from the Supreme Court? I mean, that's clearly not going to happen. I mean, how, how do we make sense of this? This is madness, isn't it? It is madness, but it's not. Um, what we are seeing is known as institutional capture, right? Um, institutional capture means basically you take, if you think of democracy as a game between two or more teams, what they're doing is they are tilting the playing field 
uh, through gerrymandering and voter suppression, but they're also capturing the referees um, so that they don't call the game straight. And the thing is, is you can't do anything about the referees. You can't fire them. You can't fire Justice Thomas. You can't fire Ginny Thomas. She can be brought in um, and subpoenaed and questioned, but the ability to prosecute anyone seems a little bit iffy. Um, there's a big question of, great, well, these hearings are laying out a pretty great case of what actually happened, but what is anyone going to do with it? And the answer is, no one knows, and there's doubts whether or not anyone is at the DOJ is going to pick this up and run with it. Um, and at the same time, we know that the committee is going to be disbanded after this November uh, as Democrats lose control of the House. This seems to be high probability event. Uh, it's very, very rare for the incumbent party not to lose seats in a midterm. So. We're in the, you asked as well, you know, uh, should Thomas recuse himself? You know, like, well, yeah, but, you know, if wishes were fish, as beggars would be kings. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, or to use a quote Chuck Yeager once used with me was, you know, if, if a frog had wings, he wouldn't bump his ass when he hopped. Um, and I, I'm a, this is part of my overall pessimism, is that we have gone so far down the rabbit hole. The system has broken so badly, the guardrails are so damaged, there is so little will to fight against this, there is so much belief by Democrats that the system will still redeem itself or is capable of fixing itself, that nothing is really happening, that there is no sense of urgency among Democratic leadership, um, and it's only a few, you know, uh, a handful of fascism scholars like Jason Stanley, um, and in particular, uh, Levitsky, Way, and Ziblatt, and others who wrote an open letter saying, our democracy's almost dead, fix it, do something, a year ago when nothing's been done. Um, you know, the, the, there's this odd cabal of Cassandras who, for whatever reason, recognize how bad things are and how vanishingly small our opportunity to fix this is and how quickly it's disappearing. I worry that, um, I mean, I, I said this when I, I spoke with Alison Gill last week, that, you know, in the same way that Bill Barr paraphrased the Mueller report and rewrote it on, you know, on a podium because he knew that nobody had read it, that there, there'll be some kind of selective memory going on with this, these hearings and this investigation. Because, of course, anybody who is on the right gets their news from Fox or OAN or Newsmax or any of these echo chamber spaces doesn't think anything has really changed. You know, this this uh, investigation has been painted as being just a, a bit of a joke, nothing new, nothing new to see. And yet every day we're hearing about new evidence, whether it be someone giving a tour to people the day before the insurrection or indeed this week, which I find most interesting, this idea that Trump was effectively committing a financial fraud by raising money and the money going into his own pocket, and not where he said it was going to go. I mean, do you think that there's a chance that Trump and his cohorts could be prosecuted on a technicality like that? Something not as theatrical as an insurrection, but something more uh, clinical as, as campaign finance law? I think that there's a chance that Trump could get caught up in raising money 
uh, and miss for his you know election defense fund or whatever he was calling it, and be be caught for fraud. But it's going to take a fairly committed, and I'm looking for a better term than ballsy. Yeah. But uh, that's the best I could come up with. Prosecutor to decide that they're good, going to take this on. Looking at the January 6 hearings themselves, yeah, they're there's dropping some great information. The problem is, is America is so polarized that all reason has been lost. You know, um, an example I'd use is Herschel Walker is an objectively awful candidate, right? He's virtually incoherent in interviews. Um, he's anti-LGBT. He's a hypocrite about fatherlessness as it's come out that he's fathered two children out of wedlock and hasn't supported them. Um, he has no concept of the issues and he's still tied with Warnock in the polling, right? Um, Similarly, we've talked about the alternate reality that, that Trump supporters exist in. And when you look at the people who are Trump supporters and the January 6th uh, hearings, very few of them are going to have their minds changed because, as you mentioned, a significant portion of them um, aren't going to hear about it, are going to get misinformation, half information, half truths, uh, and such from Fox News. So they're going to treat it as a nothing burger or they're still going to believe that it was really Antifa or an FBI sting or something, that it's not real. This wasn't a real insurrection. They're going to buy the party line. They're going to buy the Fox line. And what's worse is that there's going to be a significant percentage that say, yes, this absolutely was a coup, attempted coup, and God, I wish it had succeeded. That's the tragedy, isn't it? That actually, for those of us who believe in democracy who are pro-democracy and i think of myself as as a pro-democracy person not a democrat i don't get to vote in this in this country but i i am very pro-democracy and i fear that the supporters of trump the republicans who are behind this they actually see january 6 as one of the great days as trump said himself one of the greatest days greatest things to happen and you know it's more of a celebration than than to them than it is to anybody else and and i guess this is that line of you know i don't really see it as political i see it as sanity and insanity because you know you have to know a little bit about the world and about other democracies that have fallen or you know and and anybody who's seen active service who's been in iraq or afghanistan recognizes what life is like under different types of regimes and yet we have this fascist regime that is very much on the horizon here certainly uh, you know i have fears for 2024 and yet you know it's almost like they 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 will not benefit for what from what they wish for you know that the, 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 the poor don't benefit from a fascist regime so there's a quote by Lyndon Baines Johnson about this that's, that sums it up pretty well because the, the white evangelical South was what it was in 1964 and it is what it is today uh, behind Donald Trump. But he made a remark, and I'm paraphrasing here, that says, um, you know, the, the, even the low, lowest white man will let you pick his pocket so long as you're hurting black people worse, right, was, was kind of the gist of what he was saying. And as most Trump supporters um, feel like in this culture war, 
that as long as somebody's fighting the culture war for them, they're getting ahead, that their place in society is being restored. And they might not think of it intellectually that way, but emotionally that's how it's coming across for them. That this is, you know, when Donald Trump talks about winning, yeah, this is winning to them. If there's no more trans people in the military, there's no more trans people in schools, there's no more gay people getting married, that's winning. How does that make their lives better? Doesn't matter. That's winning because it's restored their position within society. And it's so sad because a lot of these people are so poor and Trump's policies does nothing for them. Actually, uh, I'm going to yes and no. Um, One of the really interesting things that came out of analysis of Trump supporters during the primaries in 2016, um, and you can go to 538 for this, was they found that not only were Trump voters better off than the average American, but they were better off than the average Republican, right? Um, that this is a white middle class kind of aggrievement movement. Yes, it, it appeals to poor white people, but it also appeals to a middle class that's had more advantages in life and therefore has more money than similarly similar cohorts, but being older and whiter gives them an economic advantage over the rest of the country in a lot of ways. It's very, it's very interesting. It's the same in England with the support for Boris Johnson. You know, the, the, the people that support him will not benefit from his policies, um, but they just like the, the populism, you know, the, the idea that this guy is a, is a winner and says controversial stuff. It, as you say, it emotionally chimes with them, and they would rather that than actually somebody who really cared about democracy and about supporting those uh, who are in need. And, and I've always been fascinated at this desire of some Americans to ignore collective responsibility and, and you know, the fundamentals of socialism, where you basically everybody benefits if, if everybody is, uh, you know, looking after everybody else. And it's just... It's not really a thing here. You know, socialism is, is it's as scary a word as the fascism word that nobody <laughs> uses either. Um, let's finally just talk about Saudi Arabia, because uh, this is um, uh, Joe Biden's planned trip to visit Saudi has been criticized um, because as a candidate for the White House, he labeled Saudi Arabia a pariah and pledged to recalibrate the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Well, after taking office, the administration made clear the president would avoid direct engagement with uh, Prince Mohammed and focus on King Salman. He's now going to meet Prince Mohammed in Jeddah at the end of a four-day trip beginning on the 13th of July. I also remember that there was this uh, weapons deal uh, selling arms to Saudi. Of course, Saudi, a huge customer for American arms. Same with the UK. The UK sell arms to Saudi quite happily. Uh, And I really thought that Biden would cancel this deal that Trump had done with the Saudi government to buy arms. And he didn't. It was allowed to go through and it was ratified by Congress. I mean, what's happening here? How do we how do we balance this kind of contradiction between Saudi and their their human rights atrocities? And also arguably their involvement in 9-11. I mean, you know, many of those bombers were Saudi nationals and that always... 15 of the 19. 15 of the 19. And that, that always seems to be you know, ignored because we were distracted with uh, with weapons of mass destruction. So 
how do we how do we qualify this? And is Joe Biden doing the right thing or is he just not saying it in the right way? So there's a lot going on here. Um, part of it is trying to, uh, without talking about the Ukraine situation too much, some of this is trying to keep a lid on the Ukraine situation. Some of this is with what's going on in Ukraine. Oil prices, if you might have noticed, are kind of high. Um, there is some price gouging going on, but we are seeing prices per barrel being as high as they were back in 2014. Um, and Biden is under pressure to keep OPEC spigots open um, to try and reduce oil prices. And part of the Democratic Party's needs for the election in November is to do anything they can to get oil prices down because inflation and oil, oil prices have been kind of a number one, um, you know, bread and butter, uh, breakfast table, you know, uh, talking point for the GOP. So in order to uh, have any influence with the Saudis, he's kind of caught over a barrel, and the Saudis know exactly how much Biden needs them more than Saudi Arabia needs Biden. Um, and as much as we hate to admit it, uh, Trump had good relations with Saudi Arabia because he let them do pretty much whatever they wanted um, and sold them the weapons they asked for, right? Um, and there's been really no consequences for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. So this is, in some ways, um, we're not letting morals get in the way of political necessity. Now, how you feel about that? Well, I don't know that there's any good answers um, other than, yeah, okay, we could stick it to Saudi Arabia and then we'd have, you know, $7 a gallon gasoline. The, the, the gas price thing is interesting, isn't it? Because... Originally, Biden started referring to it as Russia's price hike, right? Trying to blame the war on Ukraine for the for the high gas prices, and people didn't really buy that. Meanwhile, uh, Robert Reich tweeted the other day that Big Oil's first quarter profits: Shell nine billion, Exxon Mobil eight point eight billion, Chevron six point five billion, BP six point two billion, and suggested why not a windfall profits tax? I mean. Is not part of the problem here that actually there are American companies making huge profits and using the price of a barrel of oil and the war in Ukraine as an excuse for making making up the profit that they claim they didn't make during the pandemic and during lockdown when fewer people were driving? The, the, there, as you say, there is a lot to this, but I, I fear that maybe these are separate issues. And what Biden is going to the Middle East to do is probably slightly different to what he's telling us. I mean, there must be other reasons for his trip, because it's not all about gas prices, is it? No, it's not about all about gas prices. There are things with Israel and national security and other areas of national security that I really can't go into uh, here. But there is a lot going on, and the relationship with Saudi Arabia is a long, complicated, and ugly one. I mean, particularly when you consider that they've been our bulwark against Iran since 1979, 1980, um, them in Iraq. So there's a lot of moving pieces here, but it doesn't change the assessment that we need Saudi Arabia more than they need us, and they know it. 
I, I fear because I, I used to think about this when I lived in, in England as well, you know, because there was, you know, England's two biggest exports are, um, I think, uh, oil and gas followed by <laughs> arms. You know, <laughs> it's like you just can't win. And it's the same here, isn't it? You know, the the the. The, the military, this kind of trade of military equipment, it's massive. It's worth a fortune. I mean, even American presidents boast about these deals, you know, 600 million and here and there. It's like, it's a lot of money to make. It's a lot of profit to be had. And it's almost as if every country has its price. And to some extent, yes. Uh, you look at Europe and they what's going on with ukraine and russia the russian uh oil and natural gas are definitely a critical factor in their reasoning and we know what the moral correct thing to do is and that's not happening for economic reasons so um I would say that this is not a unique conundrum to the United States, um, you know, and Biden is probably going to give a lot more weight to what happened to Jamal Khashoggi than Donald Trump did, but it's still not a particularly uh, great place to be from an ethical standpoint. Now, this, the solution would be, wow, what if we invested in other kinds of energy and energy, not just energy independence, but getting away from fossil fuels altogether. And wow, that would be great. And Biden's uh, energy bill and inf you know, is essentially dead on arrival with the Senate because that would get in the way of profits with the oil companies. And, and, and you know, so are windfall taxes. They're dead on arrival as well. Right. And it's, it's, it's tragic. I, I actually just drove across the country uh, from Texas um, back to uh, California. And uh, it was very interesting, you know, seeing the landscape, thousands of miles of just wasteland, effectively, that would be ripe for solar panels, that would be ripe for wind turbines. I got to see wind turbines when I eventually got to California. There was, they were everywhere, and it was amazing. And I also saw Solar City, you know, I saw these huge so solar farms. And this is land that is not used for harvest. This is land that is otherwise, you know, salt flats or, or just wide open space, you know, public land. And I, I often think how amazing it would be if, you know, America was able to paper all of this land that wasn't being used and wasn't a necessity to the ecosystem or to wildlife or worked with wildlife because they can do that now. You know, they can create solar farms that enable the wildlife to coexist. If, if we just covered the whole country in it and, and you know, we, all, we were all able to drive electric and we were all powered by the sun. I mean, it's totally possible. But the three words Green New Deal are just as offensive to Americans as, as these words like fascism that we've referred to earlier. And, and it's such a tragedy because it's all about money, isn't it? It's well, it's not just about money. It's about culture. Um Anytime somebody suggests that maybe we should, you know, use a little less gasoline, um, you immediately get calls of socialism and communism and they're going to take away your car and they're going to, you know, or they're going to make you drive a Vespa to work or, you know, just uh, outrage you know, or they're going to force you to stop eating beef or, or, or um, it immediately gets demagogued into the ground. Um, and 
just like virtually every other topic in American society today, you cannot have a rational discussion about energy policy because one side is absolutely committed to the idea that either global warming doesn't exist or it's so mild that nothing's going to happen or it's inevitable so we should just, you know, build a hundred foot wall around America's seacoasts to keep the water out, right? Um, (laughs) Meanwhile, the evidence is all around us and we only have to look to Yellowstone National Park this week and see rising waters flooding into Montana and it's, it's... this is climate change. And, you know, well, Mother Nature is showing re- herself day after day. Yeah, f- fewer than half of Republicans see anthropogenic uh, uh, climate change as real. And only a tiny fraction see it as a significant problem. And the vast majority uh, make fun of it. Uh, I, for national security, let's, uh, one uh, particular um, defense official called uh, Global climate change is one of the biggest threats to American national security. And he got laughed at. But that's because, oh, oh, it's getting hotter. Oh, no, the military won't function. Whereas, actually, there was some very good reasons why, including uh, if we're planning on confronting China in the Pacific Rim, we need runways and bases that aren't underwater. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is what, I mean, the media has failed enormously in this. You know, I, I watched a report it was like a seven or eight minute report that CNN did the other day about Yellowstone. And they didn't mention climate change. They didn't mention the climate crisis. It was not part of the package. It wasn't even mentioned when they cut back to Anderson Cooper, the highest paid journalist on, on, on American television. Didn't mention climate change, despite this, you know, emotion, feeling, oh, this is terrible. People won't be able to visit Yellowstone. You know, they normally come here for vacation. That's what they were caring about. They were caring about the people that won't be able to enjoy a holiday instead of the fact that really the planet is is burning. But, you know, all of these freak weather events now are, are signals to us that our time is up. Our time is up, Bryn. Um, that was a painful segue, but I think I got away with it. I'm very grateful that you uh, have joined us here on the weekend show. And uh, good luck with your um, book that comes out next year. Uh, that's uh, Bryn. Thank you very much. Uh, of course. That's uh, Bryn Tannehill. I'm Anthony Davis. Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast and also the 5-Minute News Daily Podcast, which drops every morning so you can hear me tell you about the news of the day whilst you're making your morning coffee. Join me next Sunday morning with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.